Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Mariam Name, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today, we will be speaking about healthcare disparities in the cardiac ICU with our guest, Dr. Kayla Lopez. Dr. Lopez is Medical Director of the Cardiology Transitional Medicine Program at Texas Children's Hospital. She's an advanced imager and a healthcare disparities researcher who has really risen to fame in this area, in our field, and we are just so lucky to have her today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And I'll be your co-host today. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Thank you. Dr. Lopez, your talk at PCICS was fantastic, and it was very, very inspiring. Uh, I would love to hear from you how you changed the title of your talk um, and why you did it. Yeah. <laughs> so the title of the talk originally was DEI through the patient lens versus through the staff lens. That was what the title was given, but it was somewhat of an adversarial title. It shouldn't really be a versus. It should be a plus or co-aligned or something. So I changed it to aligning goals between patients and staff to improve DEI. And I kept it as staff because we're not just talking about physicians. We're talking about, you know, APPs, nursing, any support staff, respiratory staff, et cetera, because all of that matters to move the DEI needle in the ICU. Absolutely. So one thing that uh, you spoke about was the experience that families have when they come to the CICU and really about uh, what a traumatic place it is and how they're scared. Why do you think representation matters? I mean, I think we know it matters, but why why is it so important, especially from the family's lens? Well, first I'll say that there is historical context for representation mattering. Uh, there is lots of data to show that marginalized communities have been experimented on for uh, for a long, long time, even as recent as 2019, when women that were in ICE detention or detention in coming to the United States were forced to have sterilization procedures, thinking that they were getting assessed, medically assessed, and they were actually getting sterilized. So this is not old news. This is still happening today. It's happened in pediatric populations. And so there's fear because people are not sure if what someone is doing is standard of care or if are you experimenting on me because they have done this in the past. And so representation matters because you feel like you have an advocate that is looking out for you, who's from your community, who gets the experiences that your community has been through, and who can understand it and it really resonate with the experience that you've had, maybe not as a as a patient, but certainly within the community. And that changes the experience that those patients have. To feel like someone's kind of in your camp advocating for you that comes from a community makes a difference. And I'll say from my own experience in my own family for you know limited english proficiency in my own family it has been astounding to me the difference that having an advocate there makes i mean i know that i'm an advocate who happens to be in medicine mm -hmm. but even from a just a translation perspective and seeing what for example my dad understands versus what the doctor said i'm like no that's not at all what just happened here and so even understanding the literacy that occurs in an adult patient through my own i guess lived experience with my parents that has kind of further demonstrated to me why representation matters, because it's not just someone who looks like you, but it's someone who can kind of interpret what someone else is saying in a way that you can understand both culturally and then also from a health literacy perspective. Yeah. And I love that you offer us that as a tool, because sometimes thinking about healthcare disparities feels so big and like, I can't do anything. And it's 
it feels depersonalized because it's like out there. But when you challenge me to think about how scared the patients can be and so many things out of their control, I I can't really imagine what it would be like. But when I try, I think that I would just at the end of the day feel scared. And you just I would want to feel safe and I would want to feel trust with somebody, even if they didn't look like me or there was other barriers. And so when I try to think about that now on the provider side, maybe it's simplistic, but I I have found it in every time I speak to you so um, heartwarming and inspiring that, gosh, if there's any little thing I can do to foster relation and that human connection, maybe that can mitigate some of this. And I was hoping if you could speak to that a little bit more. Well, I'll just say that, I mean, additionally, if you think about your own friendship group, who do you gravitate towards? You gravitate towards people who have things in common with you, right? Whether it be because if you're an ICU doctor and you guys are all hanging out in the ICU or if it's because someone who likes the same style of music that you like or whatever. I mean, we do the same thing. So it's it's not a dissimilar thing. It's just, you know, you just put it in a different context. But as far as what other things can be done, you know, some something as simple as Nonverbal communication is hugely important to to patients, particularly if you know again there's a kind of a potential trust issue or historical context issue or language issue. How someone sees the type of care you're delivering and how you deliver that care matters to patients. They want to know that you're caring, and that doesn't necessarily always come across just by what you say. In fact, only seven percent of what you say is what the patient receives. The majority of it is actually nonverbal communication. And so there are strategies, there are training strategies that, that are in place, tr- toolkits that people can use to train themselves in how to give the best nonverbal communication in delivering care to communities that are have been historically disenfranchised because that matters to them, because that changes their experience, because someone giving them a touch on the shoulder or someone sitting down and giving them eye contact or a hug. I mean, these things actually make huge differences to various populations, you know, and understanding that and understanding how those different interactions matter to different patient populations is hugely important. One thing, one thing you, you talked about was the history of like mistrust in certain communities. I mean, is this history or, or, or is it still going on? Is there, is there still reason for uh, people to mistrust us as physicians? Well, I mean, I, I would love to say the answer to that is no, but I mean, there's everyone comes to the table with implicit biases, right? And that's something that that everyone has. Everyone has an implicit bias. It's not necessarily wrong to have it. Everyone has it, but it can shape how you deliver care, uh, your own implicit biases about various communities. There's also people kind of, there can be perceptions about, well, if you just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you should be able to work stuff out. You know, just just go ahead and go, why didn't you go to the pharmacy or why didn't you do There are systems that have been put into place for years and years and years, not just medical experimentation, but also structural racism in terms of what someone, where someone is allowed to live, what kind of things can be built in certain communities in terms of pharmacies, in terms of food deserts, in terms of safety for exercise. So some of the things that we ask patients to do is just not tenable. And for us to be able to understand that and understand why this kind of historical context about about things kind of going on time after time matters, I think was probably most evident during COVID. People are like, well, why don't you just socially distance? 
socially distance and you know make sure that you stay away from well some people can't do that some people live in homes with multi generations where there are two bedrooms for 10 people so presuming that someone can do something uh, or or presuming that they don't have a frontline uh, worker or that they are get get time off to take care of individuals all of these assumptions that are made they're all kind of go back to one's own kind of perception of what's normal or what kind of care that you should be able to deliver, what you should be able to do, when a lot of times that's just not realistic for the patients. And so from a historical mistrust perspective and taking it all the way down the line about you know what some of that historical distrust has done and what some of the disenfranchisement have done from a systemic racism perspective, if you take that all the way down the line and say, oh, this has resulted in these crazy health disparities, and now we're just asking the patients to get it together and, and wipe these disparities away because, you know, because you should be able to work this out and go to a compounding pharmacy that's two hours away or whatever, it's not fair. It's not fair to the patients. It's not fair to not take into account their social determinants. It's not fair to not understand what we're asking them to do and why sometimes it's just not realistic. It's not fair to ask someone with five kids to come to two different appointments on two different days with an echo on one day and a you know nephrology appointment on the other day, not realizing there's just one car for the whole family. And so these are things that we need to know that will change how we deliver care and, and, and why kind of from historical mistrust to structural racism and down the line, why doing social determinants health screening, health literacy screening, these things all matter because it changes how we are able to deliver care to patients, the type of uh, care that patients can receive. Just to reflect a little bit more on that, I think that many of us have been in the situation where we're taking care of a baby whose parents aren't at the bedside. The parents are very often lab- labeled as they're never there or they're not there. And just exploring that more just with, as you mentioned, social determinants of health screening sometimes is just revealed that like dad is working a job to keep the insurance. Right. Mom is at home with three other kids. Very often during COVID, it was because the kids were not, you know, mom was also homeschooling the kids as well. So we really do have to be better um, at understanding what people's circumstances are. Another thing that you talked about that I was really interested to hear about, and again, in the journey to improve, was the concept of cultural competency, which, you know, we're all striving to be culturally competent. But, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about that versus cultural humility, which is Sounds like that's what we should be striving to do a little bit more. Right. So it's hard to say that by understanding someone's culture and saying, oh, I see. Okay. So I've interacted with, I'll take, you know, my own population. I've interacted with some Latino populations who are Catholic and who are from a lower socioeconomic status. Check. Okay. So I know what that entire group is like. Thanks. And then you get a little check mark on your cultural competence in your module or whatever that you've done. It's really not broad enough to think about what actually what cultural actually means to various individuals because everyone while everyone experiences while everyone from a certain culture experiences that culture that they interact with that culture differently right so people oftentimes will expect me to speak on behalf of all latinos and i cannot i do not have the experience to speak on behalf of all latinos i myself am american so i was born in the united states so i don't have the experience of an immigrant to this country right that's my parents and so you know, to understand then cultural humility, that takes into account lifelong learning. That means that you're going to be learning about the various cultures of these individuals forever as a provider, that you'll be learning about what empathy and compassion means to different individuals from different communities, and that it might be 
this way for me as a Latina, but that way for someone else as a Latino, that might look different. And understanding that there can be differences within the same culture, right? Understanding that, understanding what someone's core beliefs are and honoring their beliefs, even though they're different than yours when you're delivering care and you just can't understand why someone would do this. Well, going and saying, okay, let me see if I can understand more why this is so important to them. And it might be something that's a cultural belief for that population, which you may not have learned in your module on the computer, right? And so it is It is really taking an approach of culture and saying, this is a lifelong learning process and I should strive to continue to learn from each patient that I take care of and learn about their their specific culture and that family's unit, you know, core values, not just I know what all Latinos think. As an example, I mean, again, I'm using my own community, but it kind of annoys me greatly that Latinos are all kind of thrown into the same bucket when there's how many different countries that are represented in using the word Latino. A lot of times people actually even use the word Hispanic and that completely excises anyone who speaks Portuguese and Brazil is the largest country in South America. So, you know, it, it's understanding that just because you get one family and their experience, it doesn't mean you understand all Latino experiences or all African-American experiences or all Asian experiences because they're all different. And that's the humility that we're looking for is saying, I need to learn from each family encounter, from each person who has a different cultural experience. And from and from that specific cultural experience, I can then learn maybe to, to use this in other patient experiences that I have as well. That's, that's profound. Yeah, that's really, really profound. And it's very, very important. What a beautiful way to even connect with a family, even around just the holidays to just say, you know, how do you celebrate the holidays? I mean, that that's just one question we can ask to have cultural humility. Is that right, Kayla? That, Some, just I mean, something like that? That's a wonderful example. Yeah. I mean, because you can't assume that just because this particular family celebrates Christmas, well, that's nice. But maybe when they see, we're seeing all these kind of things in the ICU that they celebrate Christmas, maybe they don't celebrate Christmas. Maybe they celebrate the Three Kings Day. And that's, Christmas is lovely, but they don't really celebrate that. They celebrate this other thing that's adjacent to Christmas, but not understanding why someone really wants to get out by January 6th or whatever it is, as opposed to December 25th. That's one, that's a great example. Just even this simple question, you know, how do you experience this or how do you celebrate this? That gives insight into someone's culture. Yeah. If I can actually explore that a little bit more with you, and it is such a beautiful definition and dynamic and framework that you offer us to explore. And the intersection between, you know, our individual accountability and privilege to commit to that lifelong learning process. But working, I think most of us with congenital heart disease work in these structures and organizations. And so I think you had referenced earlier, you know, that we have to go through modules and trainings and how cultural competency, for example, is one modality of training. I was wondering what your thoughts were on how to bring this conversation to the other stakeholders at play, the ones that put out the cultural competency, for example, and there might be other examples, modules. Is it as simple as bringing awareness or data or conversations to explore more effective or meaningful ways that they can foster you know, the education or awareness sort of in an institutional or systemic programmatic way. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to fault the poor people who are doing the modules. Those are, <laughs> I, I understand <laughs> so we got to do something. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. Right. And so that's completely fair to say, you know, this is where we started. That's fair, but we can do better. And so 
one great example of a way to, to train or to teach not just, you know, trainees, but also attendings is to say, let's get a panel of parents that have had this lived experience about why representation matters, about why you should have culture humility, about why, you know, presuming that, you know, someone's culture is insufficient, about why body language matters, about why eye contact matters, your, your voice tone matters. All of these things, parents can tell you how it feels. We can learn on a computer, sure, but the more, much more impactful way is to hear it come from a parent uh, or from a patient for that matter. And so I, I think that's probably the most effective tool. From the perspective of the institution, the, probably the bigger thing with the institution is to say, these patient experiences matter for outcomes. And so, you know, if you have a patient navigator, for example, who's going to help you navigate the system, that might mean that you have less uh, readmissions for, you know, I don't know, chylus effusion, for example. That's important for the bottom line of the hospital. And so how do you speak to the bottom line of the hospital is you need to give them data to show what matters and why it makes a difference to patient experiences. Well, how do you capture patient experiences? You capture it through surveys. You capture it through Prescani scores, which is, you know, that how sometimes patients rank institutions. You capture it through Unisusan World Report scoring. So now they have a new DEI section uh, that they're looking at there. And I'm not sure exactly what's in there, but at least they're trying. It's a start. And so having data that informs policy is really the only way you're actually going to speak to the institution. The only thing that's going to change the institution's mind is to do the type of research that delivers the data that will then drive the policy. So each part of research has to be not just like, did you know that there's still disparities? It has to be, these are the disparities that we witnessed, and this is the one intervention that we did that made a difference. Please give us money for this intervention. It has to be more than just describing the issue. We all know that the issue is there. Everyone's known this for a long time, and it really, people really, really knew it during COVID. But it has to be more. And the only way to drive policy change and, you know, having differences within the ICU in terms of who's there or who we can hire or whatever is to show the data that will drive that policy. And so what we really need is funding. We need money to do this research. We need people to recognize that there needs to be more funding in pediatric care. And so the only way to do that is to show that there's differential outcomes in pediatric care. And that a lot of these kind of how much funding goes to pediatrics has to do with state policies, federal policies, and IH policies. And that all can come from us too. Doctors can say, hey, we need more funding for these differential outcomes that happen in pediatrics, not just in adult care. So it behooves all doctors to actually have a policy lens, even though it seems, feels kind of weird. They're kind of like, well, it's not my sector. Well, it should be. It should be your sector because it drives how we can deliver care. That's really, really important. One thing that you talked about that we can do, at least on an individual institutional level, was this concept of a patient navigator. Can you speak a little bit more to that? And is this person a person that helps all families navigate the system, certain families navigate the system? And then what are the data in adults to support support this practice? So... A lot of times people think a patient navigator has to be some sort of a physician nurse. And the answer is actually that that's not who should be doing it in the first place. It's not who, who does it in adult medicine. Patient navigators are often individuals from a specific community who have had the lived experience of navigating a complex medical system. So for example, if you're an African-American patient whose child was in the ICU and you had a single ventricle child, you can then be the patient navigator for other African-American families in the ICU who have single ventricle children. Because you've lived that experience. You know the questions to ask. You know what certain terms mean. 
you know why patients stay longer or don't, or who, what does it mean to go from the, you know, the ICU to the step down unit to the floor? What do these things mean? Who are the, all these team members? And so you're serving as kind of a global connector for the patient. It matters the most for marginalized communities. So for communities that we already talked about, where there are differential outcomes in terms of health disparities or historical contexts or systemic racism, it matters most for them because those are the patients who have the most challenges navigating these complex medical systems because they have lower health literacy or because they have a limited English proficiency. And so those are the populations that would probably benefit the most. And the patients who have had the lived experience, there are plenty of them. We just have to give them some extra training in terms of the role that they play. There's lots of adult data that shows how to do that training, what kind of training matters. I gave the example of the Susan G. Komen Foundation, who they train patient navigators. And there are African-American women navigators who have had breast cancer, have learned to navigate the system, and are helping other Black women to navigate the system from the time that they're diagnosed all the way through to the end of their treatment. So there are ways to do this. It just requires investment. It requires funding. <laughs> it requires the institutional really dedication to saying this actually matters for patient outcomes. And so it, there have been data to show that patient navigators do improve uh, follow-up times, uh, follow-up numbers that improves readmission rates, or decreases readmission rates. Families that when they go home, they're able to actually do the care that's needed. That actually is improved by the patient navigator. And so even though we're, we're like, oh, can the patient, can this family really handle this? And we kind of have our own implicit bias about who can handle and not handle certain things. Well, the patient navigator really helps facilitate that relationship. And so those are the communities that benefit most from it. The patient navigator, you know, I think the the only other parallel that I can draw is promotoras. And those are, you know, these are kind of uh, women in the community or women or men, but often women who then, you know, help to give care to women in the community that, that can't actually get medical care up front. They help kind of be this glue or this conduit uh, for patients to receive medical care. That's and that's usually in the context of OB, but still, it's a thing that kind of helps be a conduit. And I guess maybe that's the best way to think about a navigator is a conduit, yeah. which ironically works in our in our field in cardiac ICU yeah. to talk about conduits. But, no but yeah, exactly in cardiology for sure. Um, but what a powerful way to you know really navigate healthcare disparities and improve patient literacy, you know, potentially as well. Because I think that that is something that where I feel that we are all obligated to do is somehow improve healthcare literacy because these families are just expected to do so much, take home such complex kids that we kind of micromanage in the ICU and the hospital. And then these parents are just expected to like take them home and give them 16 different medications right. and different bring, them, bring them to, you know, 10 different appointments at three different geographic locations right. in two days. So, And we don't think about that. Yeah. We don't mm -hmm. think we, you know, and that's part of the reason for Navigator. They help actually collate care. They help actually you know, have coordination between the various subspecialties that are taking care of this patient. And that's that's really helpful. And, you know, patients sometimes are really shy yeah. to ask for what they need because they feel like, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do now. Yeah. Well, you can say, actually, I can't do this. This is not, you're asking me to do crazy things now. And I don't have a compounding pharmacy, but it's two hours away. It's it's that voice that says, is this tenable? Is this fair to this to ask this family? That's the role of the navigator is to ask these types of questions and to kind of challenge the medical team in terms of what they're asking patients to do or what they're asking them to understand. Yeah. When I was listening to you, 
so beautifully described the various roles, the two words that came to mind, one was community and fostering sort of those connections within the medical system. But the other one was empowerment. Yeah. And I feel like that's a beautiful way that they can look to someone who they identify with, who does speak up and who does feel empowered to engage and to use your word challenge. And therefore, as an example, hopefully to that other person and and is that empowering conduit to go back to your work. So it's such a beautiful gift. Yeah. So there are things we can do. We don't have to solve everything. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, right. I mean, one day we will, that would be nice, but, but there are things that we can do today that can make a difference in a patient's experience and in outcomes. It just requires investment. It requires data to kind of give that investment. It requires changes in policy about what's important at the institutional level and beyond to be able to to make these impacts for these communities. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be very interested to see if we have this conversation again, like two years from now, how the U.S. News and World Report DEI report is going to impact you know, some of these strategies at an institutional level and how quickly people will be to potentially implement some of these strategies that have helped in the adult world and then may really help us in in the pediatric world. And and I think that making making the research a priority is very, very important because I think we now know there are disparities, but like really what can we do in terms of interventions to alleviate what we see or to, you know, get rid of what we see. It's, you know, the time has come for us to like really draft powerful interventions and really make a difference um, for our patients. I feel that we're very, as a community, where it should be our obligation to do this now. This My point. favorite slide usually to put, put up is just three words on a slide. And those three words are, so now what? Yeah. Well... Dr. Lopez, you have challenged us today. You have challenged our PCICU community. And thank you for such an inspiring uh, talk at PCICS. And I'm sure that many of our listeners are going to be very inspired by um, this podcast again. So thank you again uh, for speaking with us. And uh, we really enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Dunno, by Grapes, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Thank you.